Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the executive director of Healthcare Voter. But I am have also been a patient uh, because about five years ago, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and so I went through the American healthcare system firsthand. And we are here to answer your healthcare and health insurance questions with our experts, and also talk about larger issues with the American healthcare system. So please keep calling or texting in your questions, and we will answer them in a few. Future episode. Our first question for today is from Mineja, uh, who says that they're waiting a month for an appointment for a colonoscopy, and it's just never happened before. Um, they're in St. Pete's, Florida, uh, on a bay care. Uh, to answer this question and give some ideas for help, uh, welcome Alka Garel from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Um, I will say, just in general, we have seen wait times for doctors' appointments and procedures go up in the past few years, um, particularly with COVID. We saw really long backlogs of patients um, as appointments were limited and providers were called away for, um, you know, the crisis management. Um, and we also just generally in the U.S. have a worsening shortage of physicians for a number of reasons. Um, I will say in terms of what this means for your care, um, I would definitely be very, very open to calling, um, checking for cancellations, being added to a wait list. Um, I can say from personal experience that that doesn't always work, but especially if you call neither at the beginning of the week or uh, at the beginning of the day, um, they can sometimes squeeze you in a little earlier. Great. Uh, our next question is from Patty in California. Uh, they're a QMB Medicare patient with Medi-Cal as their secondary insurance. Uh, they have a number of health issues, a, a disabled senior. Medicaid has handed over their program to the insurance companies. Doctors they've been seeing for several years, including a pain doctor, are not listed anymore. Uh, they find it unreasonable that they can't see the doctors they've been seeing for years who are familiar with their issues. Is there anything that Patty can do? Uh, welcome, Diane uh, from uh, Just Care and Social Security Works. Thanks. Yes. So... This is a hard one because a lot of people are facing the same issue. Uh, Medicare and Medi-Cal plans often narrow their networks uh, in the middle of the year out of nowhere, and it comes as a surprise to lots of people. It's really terrible in terms of good healthcare practice because continu continuity of care is so very valuable. Uh, what I would do is... Um, urge you to contact your health plan and ask them to make an exception in your case because the continuity of care is so valuable. Your doctors um, know your health care needs and having to switch doctors at this point is takes a toll. Um, and I would also urge you to contact your representatives in Congress, uh, your congressmen or congresswoman uh, and your senators and see if those offices might intervene on your behalf as well. Finally, it's my understanding that in California, it's a new thing that everyone who is dual eligible, who has Medicare and Medicaid, has to be in a managed care plan. That shouldn't be the case. You should be eligible for traditional Medicare with Medicaid as your secondary coverage. So I would also um, look into um, what your state representatives are doing on this front and speak to them about uh, why you think uh, you shouldn't be locked into a Medicare Advantage plan if you have Medicaid and that you should be allowed to be in free fee for service Medicare with Medi Cal as your supplement. 
Thank you, Diane. Our next question is from Darren, who wants to know, what about Kelly versus Becerra? Uh, Alika, can you explain what is Kelly versus Becerra? Uh, it's a court case and how it could affect people. That's right, Laura. It's a, a court case that um, Judge Reed O'Connor, who will be very familiar to all of you who uh, follow ACA News, um, um, he's a district court judge in Texas who ruled on this case uh, last week. Um, and essentially, the ruling was that um, the ACA requirement for insurance companies to cover certain preventive care services for free um, was unconstitutional. And it's it's really important to note that this case looked at a subset of the huge number of preventive care services that are um, mandated um, under the Affordable Care Act, specifically those that are um, recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services uh, Task Force. Um, that includes things like screenings for cancer, diabetes, depression, um, sexually transmitted infections um, like HIV. Um, it does not include um, preventive care recommendations uh, that come from other agencies. So immunizations and um, preventive care services that target children and women uh, are not currently, uh, would not currently be affected by that ruling. Um, separately, the case also ruled, or the judge also ruled, that it's a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to require insurance companies um, or to require uh, coverage for um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, um, which is a medication you can take daily to reduce the risk of contracting HIV if you are exposed. Um, so if that ruling is upheld, um, insurers would have to choose whether to continue, and employers uh, who offer insurance would have to choose whether to continue to cover those services for free. Um, and many would likely either start um, charging for those services or increase premiums to cover the difference as well, particularly if we think about the Affordable Care Act marketplace plan. Really, really important to note, nothing has changed about your access to care just yet. This decision is going to probably get appealed. Um, and uh, so for now, you are still... Uh, able to access those free preventive care services. But again, keep an eye out for any changes that might be coming down. Thanks. Our next question is from Norma Jean, who is 85 with two chronic illnesses, uh, chronic kidney and polysemia vera, and has paid into PERS long-term care for 25 years. They just denied Norma Jean home care after three months of interviews and sending in a lot of information they requested. Uh, Norma Jean, uh, feels has has an appeal but feels they are still going to deny that appeal so diane what can or should norma jean be doing to appeal this uh denial of home care well i think appealing is what she is doing and that's a good beginning um i think also that it's always good to bring your doctor into the mix and have the doctor work with the long-term care insurance company to see whether, in fact, um, you might meet the triggers or in your doctor's estimation, you do meet the triggers, which might help with your appeal. Um, what you should know, unfortunately, is that every long-term care policy is different, and each has a different set of rules as to when you qualify for coverage. Uh, few of them can be counted on, even after 25 years of paying in. So we tend never to recommend people buy long-term care insurance policies only because um, it is so difficult to get the coverage you need, even after you've paid in a ton of money when you need it. But for now, again, I would recommend that you contact also your members of Congress and have them 
step in on your behalf. They all have offices that provide assistance to constituents. And then finally, you should contact your local area agency on aging or state health insurance assistance program for help appealing uh, the denial. Again, um, none of them necessarily will, will be able to solve this problem for you, but just having more people on board helping you and advocating on your behalf um, could make a big difference. And to reach your elder care locator and your state health insurance assistance program, you can call 1-800-677-1116. And also for a list of other resources, you can go to act.tv forward slash care talk. That's act.tv forward slash care. Thanks. Uh, and yes, you can watch uh, past episodes. You can see uh, the resources that we've made available at act.tv slash care talk. And also don't forget to keep uh, calling or texting in your questions. Our next question is from Alan, who wants to know, why don't we have better dental coverage in America? Alica, why, why don't we have dental coverage? Great question. And as someone who nearly did a history of medicine PhD, I always love this one. Um, but a lot of it actually goes back to the fact that historically med medicine and dentistry were two completely separate fields and, and kind of always have been. Um, back, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, doctors didn't do any kind of surgery uh, or invasive procedures. That was really left to what they called um, barber surgeons who did everything from cut your hair to pull your teeth to bloodlet to amputations, all of that. Um, and doctors, you know, finally uh, sort of decided that um, the, uh, uh, that surgery was also should be under their purview, but dentistry has really kind of stayed its own thing. And that extends to dental insurance. Dental insurance is also a more recent phenomenon than medical insurance. And when we look at sort of why we don't have sort of similar protections around dental coverage uh, compared to health coverage, a lot of it really, um, in my opinion, is that we haven't had sort of landmark legislation like the Affordable Care Act that really is changing and, and making those reforms. If you look at dental plans today, um, often they have a limit on what the insurance company has to pay in a given year for your care, not a limit on what you pay and then the insurance company covers the rest. Um, and that's pretty similar to what a lot of health plans were like before the Affordable Care Act. So in terms of, you know, what can we do to improve um, access to dental care and the quality of dental coverage in the U.S.? I think something like that is really going to be needed. Absolutely. And also it's been talked about uh, for Medicare to cover vision and dental, and that did not happen in this latest round of reform, but that could be something in the future. Maybe once Medicare starts tackling dental coverage, there'll be more standardization and there'll be more reforms uh, for people with private insurance too. Our next question is from Simone. Uh, who says, why are we getting harassed every day to change from Medicare to Medicare Advantage several times during the day and also repeated emails? Diane? I, I feel for you, Simone, and for everyone who has to listen to those uh, TV ads and receives all kinds of nonsense in the mail. Uh, what's happened is that Medicare Advantage has become a money machine for Wall Street. It is so profitable. 
and the government is overpaying these Medicare Advantage plans to the tune of literally billions of dollars a year. Uh, it's now projected that by 2033, um, between now and 2033, we'll have overpaid $600 billion to these plans. So they see dollar signs when they see you. And the sad reality is that it's because they get paid up front and what they get paid has no relation to the amount of money they spend on your care. And that's what they can control. And what we've seen from the data from the Office of the Inspector General and the Government Accountability Office and the Medicare uh, Physician uh, Payment uh, Advisory Commission um, is that these plans are unaccountable and are not delivering the care uh, to people, particularly people with costly healthcare needs that they're entitled to. So we are big advocates of overhauling this program immediately. And you shouldn't be, taxpayers shouldn't be, people with Medicare Part B shouldn't be paying more so that um, we enrich these corporate uh, health insurers. And that's why, though, they're at just to make. Thank you, Diane. And next, I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Margarita Jorge of Healthcare for America Now, who will be talking about the fight to lower prescription drug costs, uh, what is and isn't in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and what Congress could do next, and also what's happening in the states. So that's a lot. Let's start with what is in the Inflation Reduction Act and specifically how is it going to lower drug prices? Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the Inflation Reduction Act, as people may know, passed in uh, August. There were many iterations of it. The iteration that passed had three key pieces. I'm going to talk specifically about the healthcare provisions, but it had some other really important provisions that ultimately do impact health, like some of the climate change uh, provisions that get us cleaner air and cleaner water, uh, the tax reform provisions that raise revenue to invest in um, reducing air pollution. Uh, the, the prescription drug provisions in this bill were really historic. Um, many folks, uh, some on this call, Diane Archer, certainly uh, have for years been trying to lower drug prices through negotiations in Medicare, which were prohibited. So in the Medicare law, uh, that passed back in 2003, negotiations for lower prices under Medicare Part D, the prescription drug plan, had been prohibited. So in this legislation, a couple of things happened. And I like to talk about this as kind of two categories of reforms. There are reforms that lower price, so they take power away from the prescription drug industry to be able to set whatever price they want and raise it whenever they want, really important. And then there's some really important provisions that lower cost, which is what folks pay out of pocket when they go to fill a prescription at, at the pharmacy. So let's talk about price first, because price is really something that everybody is struggling with, and we've had very little control over it uh, over the, um, the last few decades. The drug industry really has a lot of control in terms of setting their prices and raising them. We know that we see them raise prices twice a year. So two key reforms that passed under the Inflation Reduction Act, one was negotiations over a narrow set of expensive drugs in Medicare. So some of the most expensive, most used drugs, the prescription drug corporations will no longer have unilateral power to just set prices, they are going to have to negotiate those prices the way other agencies do. Really important. The second thing is that the legislation creates a mechanism by which prescription drug corporations that raise their rates 
faster than inflation. And this is not an unusual thing. For years, the drug corporations have raised their prices faster than inflation. But under this new law, if they do that, they will be penalized and have to pay a rebate back to Medicare. So those are two really important things that tackle price. Let me talk about a couple things that help with cost. These are also really historic. It's a little bit, sometimes when we talk about this, it's a little shocking that it took this long to get here. But uh, this legislation creates a $2,000 limit on what seniors can pay out of pocket for medicines in Part D. That's a big deal because for most of this uh, last couple of decades, seniors could pay an unlimited amount out of pocket, right? They could pay anybody who's ever heard about the Medicare uh, donut hole. That's really what that was about, was just no limit on what we could ask seniors to pay out of pocket for their prescriptions. So that's a really important historic provision. Another one is a, a $35 a month cap on insulin for seniors who have insulin controlled diabetes. Big, big deal. The price of insulin has been skyrocketing. We've even seen stories in the media about people dying because they've had to ration their insulin. Um, the bill does a couple other things like providing more assistance to low income seniors who need help to afford prescription medicine. It makes all vaccines free under the preventative care measures of Medicare. You know, things like COVID and flu were already free, but some vaccines like shingles were not free and seniors had to pay out of pocket. So that's going to end. All of those vaccines will now be free for people. So those are some pretty important prescription drug reforms in the bill. Um, one other thing I'll mention about health care in the bill is that the, the legislation does make Affordable Care Act coverage for about 13 million people affordable. So there'd already been some good progress on that. That progress would have evaporated had we not passed the Inflation Reduction Act. But because of the Inflation Reduction Act, people will be able to retain their um, more affordable coverage over these next three years, which is really important as folks are rebuilding their sort of household incomes coming out of COVID. Let me pause there. Uh, yeah, that's that's going to be so critical. Uh, so this bill affects Medicare and drug pricing, uh, but it may not have too much of an effect uh, for people not yet on Medicare. Can you talk a little bit about what Congress uh, could or should do to help folks not on Medicare? Yeah, you're right. I mean, one of the big, um, you know, as we move bills, they change. One of the big limitations of this law is that it does not help people who have private coverage, which is most people is 150 million people. And so Congress still has a bunch of work to do to try to lower drug prices for people who have private coverage through a bunch of different kinds of regulations that we're hoping to be able to work on over the coming few years. A lot of those things are about tackling monopolization in this industry. So again, some of those same kind of reforms that really regulate the prescription drug industry's ability to set prices and just continuously raise them. Uh, the same kind of $35 insulin cap that we were able to get for folks in Medicare, we would like to see a national insulin cap that's for everybody, private insurance, people without insurance who also are struggling with prices. So that's another kind of reform. Uh, there's a lot of transparency reforms. One of the hard things about regulating in this industry and really creating some fair rules for patients is that a lot of the funding for new medicines 
uh, it, it's just not very transparent that that money really comes from the federal government. And that in fact, taxpayers and patients should have access to these medicines at very affordable rates because we generally pay for the development of a lot of them. So there's quite a lot of work on the horizon to do on this issue for people who have private insur insurance and then certainly people who have no insurance who also need access to affordable medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a specific bill about lowering insulin costs that could get a vote this year in Congress. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, that's an insulin cap bill. We actually thought there would be a vote on that bill uh, this month, but it sounds like it, there's not going to be a vote until December. But that bill, even though it's an improvement, it would create a $35 a month insulin cap for people with insurance. It still doesn't address the, the cost of insulin for uninsured people. So it still has that limitation, though it would be a significant improvement. One thing that we learned uh, working on prescription drug reform is that it's actually people ages 44 to about 64 that are struggling the most with out-of-pocket costs on their prescription medicine, which was a surprise in some ways, though not in other ways, just because folks are aging during that span and they're needing more medicine. And private plans often are not covering medicine in the way that we thought that they would. So um, the insulin cap bill would limit the price out-of-pocket costs of insulin, $35 a month. Some states already have this legislation, and there's a number of other states that are trying to pass insulin caps right now. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening in the states? Since it sounds like for the longest time there hasn't been reform on drug pricing nationally, but there's been interesting things happening in specific states. Can you talk about that? Yeah, actually, this price cap, the $35 price cap, that was a policy idea that was initiated in states, states like Minnesota, uh, Connecticut. So a number of states have already passed uh, a reform that limits the price of insulin to $35 or around that amount. In a couple of states, it's $40. Uh, so that's an important one. A lot of states are trying to increase transparency by passing uh, boards. So they're trying to create state boards that would require prescription drug corporations to justify the increases in their rates for medicine, um, which is very helpful in terms of transparency. One reason why we haven't seen more progress on the state level is, of course, because the tremendous cost of prescription drugs, just like all things healthcare, where you really see the rubber hit the road, both with patients and with taxpayers, is in the big programs like Medicare, right? Like Medicare, the even sustainability in terms of Medicare costs are affected by how quickly the price of prescription drugs are going up. I think actually at the state level, we're going to see a lot of reforms. And I wouldn't be surprised to see not just caps on insulin, but actually other high profile medicines, right? Asthma medicine is another one huge increase in cost over the years. Tons of kids have asthma. EpiPens, right? Huge cost to EpiPens. Kids often have to have three or four for school, for camp, for what have you. So I think actually this idea of elevating the specific instance of one medicine that's widely used and common, right? We're not talking about some fancy new thing. We're talking about medicines that have been out there for a while, but their prices have been increasing unsustainably. I think we're actually going to see caps around a number of those medicines in states. Mm -hmm. And would you agree that the best way to do this would be to do national reform? But if there aren't the votes for that, we're going to see it happen maybe piecemeal in the states? Well, all of us that work on healthcare, we're pretty used to the piecemeal. Um, 
Of course. Look, the best way is for Congress to get its act together and pass legislation that actually is universal legislation that tackles profit in the industry and that guarantees people access to the health care and affordable medicines that they need. That would be great. Um, and we should keep fighting for that. In the meantime, people should do what they can because people are struggling. Nobody in this country should be losing their life because of insulin or cancer medicine or what have you. And the truth is that often the work that people are doing in states, advocates and lawmakers to advance legislation that makes progress, it seems like it's small progress. That is the progress that then drives the national change. And certainly we saw that with the Affordable Care Act. We've seen it with prescription drugs. We're going to see it on a lot of the reproductive care issues. So I just really encourage people in states to keep plugging away because it really creates a lot of leverage for us in Congress to be able to say to lawmakers in Congress, well, look, your state did it. You should champion this with your colleagues in Congress because your state did it, Angie Craig. You know, your state did it, Senator Casey. So um, I think the two things really fit together. We should always aim high, go big, and uh, until we can get as big as we can, we should continue to take the incremental steps in states. So for somebody watching or listening to this right now, and they're facing the high cost of prescription drugs or health insurance or healthcare in general, uh, what should they be doing? Should they be contacting their senator, their representative, their state legislators? And what should they be asking? I think they definitely should contact their national legislators. Um, you know, everybody knows there's an election coming up. It's not going to be a surprise. Your state, your lawmakers pay a lot more attention when there's an election coming up. So I'm just going to say when there's an election coming up, now is a great time. We've been encouraging advocates that we work with to A, thank their legislators that helped us pass this prescription drug reform, long overdue reform in Medicare, and to say we're looking forward to helping implement this legislation. And also next year, we got 150 million people who have private coverage. I'm one of them, right? I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z things. It really does matter when lawmakers hear from you because lawmakers have lots of different things on their plates. And it's, it really is, I hate to reduce it down to this, but it's a squeaky wheel situation, right? So be, we should be the squeaky wheel all the time. And then conversely, with lawmakers that did not support this legislation, we should be calling them and we should be saying, listen, you know, we get it, Republicans, Democrats, but at some point there are some things that are bigger than politics and people having life-saving medicine like insulin should be one of those things. Right. And lawmakers that are not willing to get past their politics because, you know, they think they're going to make a political score by denying people insulin. Those lawmakers should be held accountable. They should hear from their constituents. So I think always making a call to your lawmakers is really important. I mean, that is how democracy works. Right. It only works if regular people are telling their stories, regular people are in touch with their lawmakers and reminding those lawmakers that, you know, by the way, they do work for us and they should be doing things that benefit us. Absolutely. And after mm -hmm. you're done calling your legislators, write a letter to your local paper and tell your story because uh, mm -hmm. just talking to your legislators is one way of pressuring them to do the right thing. Another way is uh, getting loud in public about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you don't have to be, listen, no one needs a PhD to write a letter to the editor. We're talking a couple hundred words. Hi, my name is. I. I work full time. I can't afford insulin for myself, for my kid, for whoever. This is a travesty. 
Congress is not done yet. It's great that they passed this reform for seniors. The job's not done until everybody in this country gets access to affordable medicine. Absolutely. And it sounds like there could be a vote in December. So you should be contacting your senators, your representative in Congress. Make sure they hear from you that you are paying attention and they need to vote for lower drug prices in December. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us for Care Talk today. Please keep calling or texting in your questions and we'll answer them in future episodes. And again, thanks for listening to Care Talk.